O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Those of you who are fans of mystery novels may know of Dorothy Sayers, a British author from the last century. She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. Sayers wrote a number of popular detective novels featuring crime solver extraordinaire Lord Peter Whimsey. Sayers was also a renowned playwright and poet, social commentator, scholar of classical languages, and a very devout Christian. Sayers was deeply concerned about the state of Christianity in her day. Christians, she said, simply didn't know what they believed. They would rattle off the creeds and not have a clue as to what those creeds meant, nor did they really seem to care. Christianity was, was reduced to nothing more than just a general feeling of goodwill and an encouragement to be a good person. The broad outlines of God's salvation story were neglected or ignored, and Christian doctrine was dismissed as being exceedingly dull. Theological ignorance in society and church was rife. In her book, Creed or Chaos, she raised the alarm. Theologically, this country is at present in a state of utter chaos, established in the name of religious toleration and rapidly degenerating into a flight from reason and the death of hope. It's fatal to imagine that everybody knows quite well what Christianity is and needs only a little encouragement to practice it. The brutal fact is that in this Christian country, not one person in a hundred has the faintest notion what the church teaches about God or man or society, or the person of Jesus Christ. She could have been writing today. We're not surprised that in our society in general, that there is a, an ignorance about Christian teaching. We are no longer a Christian nation, if indeed we ever really were one, and that is a subject for some debate. But sadly, in the Christian church today, I'm afraid that there are more than just a few people who, have, who don't have, to use Sayers' words, the faintest notion what the church teaches about God or man or society or the person of Jesus Christ. We have been talking about the problem of biblical illiteracy in the church. And biblical illiteracy leads to theological ignorance. Many folks simply don't know how to think theologically about their lives or about the great issues of the day. They allow culture or popular opinion to shape their thinking, but ignore God's word and the Christian story and its incredible heritage. With so many changes in our world today, many Christians and churches and denominations currently find, them, find themselves in a state of theological chaos. They're not sure what they believe anymore. That's why it's more important than ever that we revisit the great biblical and theological truths that have always shaped the identity of the church and continues to direct us followers of Jesus Christ today. In a day and an age where there's so much theological confusion, we need to go back to those bedrock foundational beliefs that have stood the test of time. 
The great need of the hour is to find some measure of theological clarity. Hopefully this sermon series on the five solas has helped to this end. If you are new to the series today, the word sola is a Latin word meaning alone or, or only. Uh, the five solas are five brief Latin phrases that encapsulated the core beliefs of the Protestant reformers in the 16th century, and they're still essential for us today. We began with sola scriptura, scripture alone. We said that the ultimate authority for faith and practice is holy scripture. If we want to know what we are to believe or what we are to do, then it's to the Bible that we turn. God's word trumps every other source of authority. It shapes our priorities and it directs our lives. We then turn to sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved, that is, we're brought into a right relationship with God, purely by God's grace, by God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Getting right with God is not our achievement. It's not a matter of trying harder to get into God's good graces. It's not about winning God's approval through good deeds. Getting right with God is not about what we do at all. It's what God has done for us in Christ. We are loved already, just as we are. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. Hallelujah. That's the best news ever. And then we turn to sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by grace through faith. It's through faith alone that we receive the benefits of what God has done for us in Christ. But we say that even our faith is a gift from God, a creation of the Holy Spirit within us. And all this is made possible through solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior of the world, the mediator, the only mediator who bridges the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. There is no other Savior, no other way by which we are made right with God. Our salvation is all God's doing from first to last. It's altogether appropriate, therefore, that we should end on this fifth sola, sola Dei Gloria, to God alone be the glory. The Apostle Paul, in his uh, letter to the Romans, <coughs> excuse me, his letter to the Romans, spends the first several chapters uh, with a theological discussion of what God has done for us in Christ. He talks about how we are all sinners, how we've all strayed from God, fallen short of the glory of God, and, and how God has come down to save us sinners, to reconcile us to Himself, and how that happened through Christ's death on the cross. Basically, he lays it out. We're saved by grace through faith. But then at the very end of this long theological discussion, he suddenly finds himself overwhelmed with the wonder of it all. He simply bursts out in praise and worship as a kind of loud amen, an exclamation point to everything he's been saying. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul loses himself in wonder, love, and praise. Given the greatness of our salvation in Christ, all any of us can do, really, is to respond in worship and praise and seek to make our lives an expression of thanksgiving to God. Soli Deo Gloria. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, puts it this way, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One of the great statements of faith that comes right out of our own Reformed theological heritage, it's actually it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you'd like to know. This catechism is in question and answer form, and, and kids were instructed to memorize this catechism. In fact, in seminary, they gave prizes to students who could remember the whole Shorter Catechism. And the catechism asks, what is the chief end or purpose of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The purpose of our life here on earth is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Notice the purpose of life is not to be happy. It doesn't say that the purpose of life is to eat and drink and be merry until we die. It's not about you or me at all, but we are made for the praise of God's glory. Now, that word glory is used a lot in church. Uh, we use it all the time. And it's a biblical word, and it's actually kind of hard to define because it's used somewhat differently in different contexts. But I think the best definition of glory that I've heard is this. Glory is the infinite worth of God put on display. Glory is the infinite worth of God put on display. The glory of God is God's awesomeness and His magnificence and His beauty, His supreme goodness made manifest in creation and in human life. Our God is like no other. God is like the rarest and most perfect diamond you could in all the world. Nothing else comes even close to it in value. It's set apart in all its brilliance, and that brilliance shines in, upon all the earth. So then, whatever we do, whether it's eating or drinking or working or playing, we ought to be honoring God in all things, showing forth His glory, proclaiming His infinite worth, living in such a way that we are expressing our gratitude to God for all that God has done for us, making God smile. Great music makes God smile. I think God smiled at the anthem today. Beth, where'd she go? Where is she? Where are you, Beth? Beth played um, Bach for us this morning. Bach, of course, is one of the world's greatest composers. I don't know if you really know his story. He, he, he was raised in a very strict Lutheran home. And he kept his faith in spite of constant poverty and trouble and heartache. He fathered almost 20 children through two marriages. 
The death of his first wife devastated him. And then he experienced further devastation when nine of his 20 children died in infancy. Bach worked hard, but financial problems and ungrateful employers took its toll. And do you know that he died a relative unknown? Only his close friends and a few local dignitaries ever remembered him. His children inherited his manuscripts, but many of them were carelessly destroyed or lost. And it was not until a century after his death in 1750 that some of his works were rediscovered and performed by Mendelssohn. Since then, the works of J.S. Bach have been treasured by the world. And uh, as was noted on the screen, at the top of each music manuscript, both secular works like the Brandenburg Concerto and, and religious works like St. Matthew's Passion, um, Bach printed the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Or sometimes he just used the abbreviation, S-D-G. Bach grasped the essential truth that God wanted every activity to be done to his glory, and his music still glorifies God today. Bach offered the Lord his best in spite of great hardship, and all of his music, well, all of it was music to God's ears. Every day, each one of us is composing something with our lives. Do you... And I, do we feel comfortable writing above the score for all to see? Soli Deo Gloria. Will the song of your life make God smile? So we seek to honor God in all that we do, every career, every vocation, every job, no matter how humble, is a calling to serve God. If we teach, then we are to teach to the glory of God. If we sell real estate, then we're to sell to the glory of God. If we manufacture airplanes, then we make them to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Showing forth His infinite worth and the, the quality of the work that we do. This is, in fact, one of the great legacies of the Protestant Reformation. It reminded us that every work is sacred and can honor God not just overtly religious work carried out by the clergy. It's called the priesthood of all believers. So, whatever you, so wh whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, says Paul, do it all for the glory of God. Now it's time for some honesty. Are we truly out to glorify God, or are we more into glorifying ourselves? Are we really interested in being used by God to build God's kingdom? Or are we more about building our little kingdom? Are we ambitious for God? Or are we merely ambitious for ourselves and our own status in life? Are we worshiping the one true God? Or are we most of the time worshiping ourselves? We are always in danger of slipping into the idolatry of self. As I was working on the sermon, I couldn't help but think of that ancient story in the book of Genesis about a people who wanted to build a monument to themselves. I mean a grand monument. 
They said to each other, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. It was all an exercise of self-glorification. But the Lord was not amused, and he came down and put a stop to them, scattering them over the face of the earth. God will not share his glory with anyone else, as he says in Isaiah. My glory I will not give to another. The Protestant reformer sought to correct a church that was too much about the glory of the Pope and of the hierarchy and the glories of the Roman Catholic Church. It was too much about buildings and wealth and worldly power. Outwardly, it was all supposed to be about the glory of God, but it seemed as though human beings were trying to win the glory for themselves. So to a corrupt church, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin cried out, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. The Roman Catholic Church has um, reformed itself in many ways since that time. And uh, there are great believers in that church, and uh, it's a the church itself is a rich repository of Christian teaching and tradition. But I got to tell you that uh, when Valin and I were on sabbatical, and we took this trip, and we went to Italy, and when we walked into St. Peter's Basilica, you know, the big church there on the square, I was never more proud to be a Protestant in all my life. It was way over the top, as far as I was concerned. It was all about worldly power, making a worldly statement. And I kept wondering whether Jesus would approve. A quite different experience was visiting the little town of Assisi, where St. Francis, known for his simplicity, worked with his own hands alongside Sister Claire to rebuild the little village church that still stands there today. On the same trip, we visited many of the great cathedrals of Europe, and they were all built to the glory of God, and the townsfolk employed a lot of people, and they had good intentions. They really wanted to honor God, and of course, the cathedrals are magnificent edifices. They wanted to honor God, but too often... The cathedrals became statements of the power of the bishop. In fact, towns began to compete to build the highest tower, to outdo all the others in magnificence. And many of them were so high that they became unstable and toppled. Shades of the Tower of Babel. That's what happens when worldly glory gets confused with the glory of God. Our pride so easily gets in the way. We want to put ourselves at the center of the universe. We want to seek our own glory rather than the glory of God. Well, I began a series of sermons a few weeks ago with an illustration from Vince Lombardi. Perhaps it's fitting that I should end this series with another story about Vince. Vince Lombardi, uh, I hope most of you would know, was uh, one of the most famous coaches in all football history. He coached the Green Bay Packers. 
And he had a huge ego, and he was so full of self-confidence. I mean, it was, you know, it was to the point of arrogance. Well, one year, he coached the Packers to a championship playoff. But his wife was not able to go to the game. That was a big disappointment to Vince. No one thought that the Packers were going to win. But against all odds, they won the game, and the coach was elated, and Vince Lombardi was just full of himself. And when he came home after the game, his wife was already asleep, tried to slip into bed without awakening her. But when his cold feet touched her legs, she said, God, your feet are cold. And the coach replied, when we're in bed, just call me Vince. <laughs> Only God is God. <laughs> Glory to God alone. Now, I don't generally tell stories like that, but I couldn't resist. Now, here's your assignment. I want you to go home. I want you to find a post-it note and write in capital letters, big capital letters, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria. And then stick it on your refrigerator. I don't know about you, but that's central for us. Stick it on your refrigerator, or you can put it on your computer, or on your desk, at work, or wherever you're going to see it. It will serve as a little reminder to you to honor God in all that you do, giving God your best. And then, when we are tempted to seek our own glory, feeling a little bit too big for our britches, then perhaps that little reminder will hopefully cause us to confess our unhealthy pride, knowing that only God is God. S-D-G. You know, that would be a cool little uh, wristband, wouldn't it? Huh? Everything else? S-D-G. That's better than WWJD, I think. To God alone. Be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about the greatness of our salvation and all that you have done for us, all we can do is respond in worship and praise. And how we pray, Lord, that our life will be truly an expression of thanksgiving to you. Lord, we want to honor you because you've honored us. So we give you our best. We give you ourselves. Take us and use us to your everlasting glory. To you be all praise forever and ever. Amen.